Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello. This is episode 41 of Murder Mile. So basically... Three guys called Geraghty, Jenkins and Rolt robbed a jeweller's on Charlotte Street, beat up its owner, did a runner, some bloke got shot, and because no one knew which robber had killed him, as a deterrent to any criminals, all three men were found guilty of murder. One was imprisoned, two were executed, even though only one of them fired the fatal shot, and this case sparked a big old hoo-ha, which eventually led to the abolition of the death penalty in Britain. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. What? Why are you still there? Oh, you want to know more? Oh, well, that's strange. You see, normally, when this story is told, people only focus on those three little details. How young the robbers were, how their double hanging failed to deter any future gangsters, and how the execution of at least one innocent man sparked a debate which put an end to capital punishment in our country forever. So I don't really know what else I can tell you. Except the truth. And all of the pieces that every article ever written about the case of Geraghty, Jenkins and Rolt will have failed to tell you about this whole bloody case. And I warn you, it's a lot. So strap in. Welcome to Murder Mile. A true crime podcast... No, no, no. Fast forward this shit. We've got no time for waffle today. Yep, yep, yep. Guided walk. Blah, blah, blah. There may be bangs. There may be rude bits. Yadda, yadda, yadda. Okay, here we go. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this 
is Murder Mile. Episode 41 The Forgotten Truth About the Charlotte Street Robbery Today, I'm standing on the corner of Charlotte Street in Fitzrovia, W1. Four streets north of the Corner House Cafe where Jacques Tratzett slaughtered his family. Five streets west of Margaret Lowe's home where she became the third victim of the Blackout Ripper. And two streets east... No! You know what? Bullocks to this bit. It's basically just me, a brummy, pretending to be posh, which I'm not, telling you how dull Fitzrovia is, and it is, in a snarky, sarcastic way, and at a coma-inducing pace. In essence, Fitzrovia is drab, grey, and boring as hell. Charlotte Street has a nice bit and a crap bit. We're in the crap bit. And even though the murder location has been bulldozed into dust twice, I'd normally waste precious time waffling on about how the new building looks like its architect had a seizure whilst shoving stickle bricks up his arse. And how it's now home to a sexual health clinic, which is really just a piss-poor excuse for me to insert several euphemisms for bots, foofs, plums and todgers. But not today. Right, that's the bollocks over with. Here's the story. As it was here, on Friday the 29th of April 1947, at Jay's the Jewellers, on the corner of Charlotte Street and Tottenham Street, that a bungled robbery would bring the British legal system to its knees. To get to grips with the details of the Charlotte Street robbery, of the many names you'll hear in this case, the most important are these four. Geraghty, Jenkins, Rolt and Walsh. Christopher James Geraghty, age 20, tall, neat, surly, 5 foot 10, medium build, dark, swept back hair, prone to outbursts of anger and violence, whose criminal record includes a caution, aged 11, for the theft of a torch, three years in Borstal, aged 16, for intent to rob with an offensive weapon, and one and a half years in Borstal, aged 18, for violence and robbery. Charles Henry Jenkins, aged 22, short, scrawny, scruffy, 5 foot 8, slim build, brown ruffled hair, an odd grimace on his face, and an extensive criminal record from the age of 11, including shoplifting, trespassing, and breaking and entering, serving two years for assault on a policeman, and 15 months hard labour for shop breaking and theft of a motor vehicle. Terence John Fraser Rolt, age 17, small, slim, and baby-faced, curly brown hair, and a short criminal record including being bound over for two years for shop-breaking and stealing cigarettes, and 18 months in Borstal for loitering with intent to commit robbery and the theft of several pencils. And William Henry Walsh, aged 37, stocky, squat, with prior convictions for receiving stolen goods. 
Four criminals, Geraghty, Jenkins, Rolt and Walsh. But a few days later, three of these men would be charged with murder. So how did such a simple robbery go so badly wrong? Well, Jay's the Jewellers at 73 to 75 Charlotte Street wasn't their intended target. Where things went awry was two days prior, at a very different jeweler's, two and a half miles west in Bayswater. It was the afternoon of Wednesday the 25th of April 1947. The sky was thick, murky and grey, as dark formless clouds loomed large over Bayswater. And with Queensway, being a semi-affluent street stretching from Hyde Park to Paddington, as dull drops of good old British drizzle sprinkled the sparse throng of shoppers, parked across the street, three masked men sat in a stolen Morris 10. Their target was A.B. Davies Limited, a small, independent jewellers at 91 Queensway, They knew when to hit, what to grab, and how to escape. And with the shop having been cased by a stocky cockney just two days before, this robbery was planned to perfection. By 3.25pm, with the schools letting out, the streets would be empty. Being staffed by just two men in their mid to late 50s, the jewellers had next to no security. Having stolen their getaway car less than one hour prior, even the owner didn't know that his Morris 10 was missing. And being dressed in masks, gloves and dark vague clothes, the robbers would leave nothing behind to identify them. The shop was tiny, 21 feet wide by 14 feet deep, with two long glass counters left and right, chock full of watches and rings. To the left was a watchmaker's bench, at which sat 52-year-old Herbert Colpus, who chatted to Albert Barron, an engineer who was fixing the phone. To the right was the safe, and serving two customers, William and Betty Thompson, was the shop's owner, 58-year-old Stanley Coleman. As robberies go, this was only a three-man job, with one to cover the staff, one to clear the cabinets, and one to clean out the safe. Bursting through the double doors, three armed men with their mouths masked by handkerchiefs and gripping black automatic pistols instantly turned the tranquil peace of this tiny jeweller's into a chaotic, noisy cacophony of shouting, shoving and confusion. Being terrified, William and Betty Thompson faced the wall, eyes shut, heads down. Albert Barron kept his hands held high, hoping to dear God that he'd make it out alive as with one of the rage-fueled robbers losing his rag, 
Herbert Kolpus was violently shoved into a cabinet, smashing the glass. As obeying the armed robbers, every word, Stanley Coleman opened the safe. And with their bags filled, someone shouted, Come on, come on, let's go! And just like that, they were gone. And that was it. They were in and out in less than three minutes. No shots were fired. Nobody died. No one was seriously hurt. And none of the robbers were identified. It was the perfect robbery. Having nabbed 26 rings, 4 bracelets, 1 brooch and 17 watches... For three desperate men, barely out of Borstal, and a stocky cockney with a gambling problem, split four ways, it was enough. Except it wasn't split four ways, it was split two ways, with Walsh taking half. The robbers had been robbed, and with three criminals being victims to a crime, who were they going to call? The police? So being broke, hungry and furious, Geraghty and Jenkins set about robbing another jeweller's. Only this time, instead of remaining anonymous, this robbery would escalate their names into infamy. The plan was hatched in the Billet Public House in Bermondsey, South London, on the morning of Friday the 27th of April 1947, just hours before the robbery itself. And although a bit rushed, the setup was the same as before. Jenkins would cover the staff, Rolt would clear the cabinets, and Geraghty would clean out the safe. With handkerchiefs as masks, a stolen getaway car, and all three men packing a revolver, the deal was done, the loot would be evenly split three ways, and the boys went to check out their target. At 12pm, all three men departed Shadwell Tube Station, and arrived at Good Street Tube Station just shy of 1pm. As before, being eager to dump the getaway car and escape amongst the mass of commuters on London Underground, they'd already purchased three return tickets to Shadwell for sixpence apiece. And having found a suitable black Vauxhall 11 saloon left outside of 56 Whitfield Street, just one road away, Rolt had no problem stealing it, as in a less security-conscious era, Rolt knew that almost all Vauxhall 11s were started by a single key marked as MRM 11, which he had in his pocket. And having briefly cased the joint, eyed up the loot in the window, and swiped a brown paper bag from a local grocer's to stash their sparkly goodies, seeing that the shop was a little bit full of lunchtime punters, Geraghty, Jenkins and Rolt 
popped into a nearby greasy spoon cafe to wait a while with a cup of tea and a bacon sarnie. As before, they'd get in and out in less than three minutes, with no shots fired, no one injured, nobody dead, and none of the robbers identified. Their target was Jay's the Jewellers, a diamond merchant and pawnbrokers, at the junction of Charlotte Street and Tottenham Street, just a two-minute walk from the Good Street tube station. And although they'd never set foot inside the store before, had no knowledge of the layout, the safe, the staff, or the security, by rehashing the Bayswater plan, they guessed it would be okay. By 2.30pm, with the schools still an hour away from letting out, the streets were packed with parents. Being staffed by six people, the jewellers had more than adequate security. And being dressed in a bizarre array of brightly coloured masks, caps and coats, the robbers were easy to identify. Rolt was dressed in dark clothes. Bafflingly, Geraghty decided to commit an armed robbery wearing a bright blue overcoat with fetching red checks, a cheeky blue cap and a delightfully white silk handkerchief over his mouth. And although Jenkins' cap and mask was equally florid, more importantly, he wore a fawn-coloured raincoat. So as Rolt parked the getaway car on the corner, when Geraghty and Jenkins separately burst in via the shop's two entrances, instantly, everything went to pot. The shop was a chaotic mess, as being spread over two floors, split into two separate rooms, both of which were subdivided into several separate sections. With every cabinet locked, every door barred, every window alarmed, and confusion being a big part of the store's security, as having been robbed on a regular basis, this time the jewellers were prepared. In the first room, the pledges department, nothing was on display. No gold, no silver, no bronze. Just its 70-year-old shop manager, Mr. Bertram Keats, sat inside a steel cage, behind a wall of bars, and oblivious to the masked man who stood in his doorway, as he was half-blind and almost totally deaf. Next door, in the sales department, it was no better, as although its gleaming cabinets were crammed full of watches, rings and sparkly things, there stood the bulk of the staff. Youthful sales assistant Ronald Grout, two mid-twenties salesmen Alfred Ambrose and William Hazel, and its owner Alfred Stock. And as both Jenkins and Geraghty stopped gasped and recoiled. The plan went out the window. Geraghty, with a gun in each hand, pointed the rusty 32 caliber bulldog revolver at the startled staff, 
and to get their attention, he fired a warning shot. As he dived over the counter, totally failing to spot that 17-year-old Ronald Grout had slipped out and dashed into a nearby cafe to call the police. And once again, for the second time in two days, a West London jewellery store descended into chaos. But amongst the sea of swirl and confusion, it was the staff who had the upper hand. Having shoved the barrel of a gun into Mr. Keats' wrinkled and rather bemused face, having screamed, Open the cage! With a dull buzz, Mr. Keats let Jenkins in. And although he was rather old, mostly deaf and practically blind, Mr. Keats fought back and pummeled the masked man with his fists and his feet, as in the ensuing scuffle, somewhere in the shop, Jenkins lost his gun. An ear-splitting siren wailed as the staff hit the alarm. In panic, Geraghty fired a shot, narrowly missing the salesman and blasting out a glass panel between both rooms. And seizing the chance, with the cabinet keys in hand, Ambrose and Hazel dashed out into the safety of the new Scala restaurant. The robbery was a total shambles, as with the unarmed Jenkins being duffed up by a deaf pensioner, the cabinets locked, the staff scarpered, thick crowds having formed on Charlotte Street, all eager to get an eyeful of the criminal commotion, as having refused to open the safe, Geraghty angrily beat 64-year-old Alfred Stock about the head with a thick metal butt of his gun. And although, once again, the robbers were angry, bruised and empty-handed, hearing sirens, from the doorway, Rolt shouted to his comrades, Come on, let's go! As the three masked men fled into their getaway car, to make a daring escape. Or they would have done, had the car started. Being notoriously unreliable, even with the right key, as Rolt struggled to turn over the ignition of the Vauxhall 11, with horns hooting, fists shaking, and distant police sirens growing ever nearer, the street began to swell with a throng of angry people. And after several seconds of sweating, thumping and colourful curse words, by the time that the stuttering engine finally fired up, not only had a ten-ton truck blocked the fleeing bandits' escape, but as they tried to reverse, a second truck pulled up behind. Being trapped, they had no choice but to run. As Jenkins and Rolt bolted east down Tottenham Street, Rolt was roughly grappled to the ground by two passers-by, as behind him, having left Geraghty to fend for himself, an angry mob circled the heavily armed robber, wielding whatever came to hand, 
whether bricks, brooms or bottles. And as the shop's bloodied owner, Albert Stock, staggered into the street, screaming, Help! Police! His finger pointing at Geraghty. Being swarmed by revving trucks, hooting buses and looming locals, as Geraghty tried to flee, roaring up Charlotte Street, a bright red motorbike blocked his path. As Rolt kicked himself free by booting the heads of his grappling pursuers, although the sharp shock startled him, Rolt fled and didn't look back, as behind him, he heard a loud bang. One street over, on Torrington Place, Jenkins and Rolt darted into Brook House, stashed Jenkins' black gloves, brightly coloured cap, and easily recognisable fawn-coloured raincoat in a second-floor storeroom, and then hopped on a bus to the Strand, where Rolt flung his gun into the Thames, and both men disappeared into the crowded darkness of the London Underground. And although he was pursued on foot, even Geraghty managed to escape, as the angry mob had dispersed, just seconds after he had shot a motorcyclist in the face. The robbers vanished. Nobody saw their faces, Nobody heard their names, and none of them had left a fingerprint. So the police investigation ground to a halt. Then, on the 3rd of May 1947, Mr. Reginald Hine, caretaker of Brook House in Torrington Place, found an easily recognisable fawn-coloured raincoat, speckled with blood. Inside the pocket of which, the owner had left a tailor's ticket, which led to a known offender called Charles Henry Jenkins. Jenkins was swiftly arrested, along with Geraghty and Rolt. On the 28th of July, 1947, after a six-day trial at the Old Bailey, even though, throughout the robbery, each of the accused was heavily disguised, were never identified by witnesses, were unwilling to admit the truth, and as it was impossible to prove who had fired the fatal shot, even though Geraghty had confessed to the murder, 22-year-old Charles Henry Jenkins, 20-year-old Christopher James Geraghty, and 17-year-old Terence John Peter Rolt were all found guilty of assault, armed robbery, and murder. Classified as a minor, 17-year-old Rolt was detained in prison at His Majesty's pleasure. But being just a few years older, on Friday the 19th of September 1947, as a deterrent to would-be criminals. Both Geraghty and Jenkins were executed at Pentonville Prison. An innocent man had been hung. And by 1965, 
After many miscarriages of justice, the death penalty in the United Kingdom was abolished. What? That's it. Three angry guys robbed a jeweller's in revenge for having been stiffed by a buddy, and in the course of a bungled robbery, someone got shot, and because the legal system couldn't prove who had killed him, even though Geraghty was clearly the murderer, a crime for which he had confessed to, Jenkins, as an unarmed and innocent man, was executed. But then, as I said earlier, when this story is told, normally people only focus on those three little details. How young the robbers were, how their punishment failed as a deterrent, and how the execution of an innocent man sparked a debate which led to the abolition of the death penalty. And yet, no matter what way this story is told, Geraghty, Jenkins and Rolt always come across as the victims. But then, who was the real victim in this story? There's one who always gets overlooked. If you blinked, you would have missed him. But if you'll let me, I'd like to tell you his story. On the morning of the 27th of April, 1947, as three feckless half-wits called Geraghty, Jenkins and Rolt readied themselves to steal from a store because they were too lazy, greedy and thick to hold down an honest job, 34-year-old Alec de Antiquitis, a former corporal in the Home Guard, a loyal husband to his wife Gladys and doting father to their six children, toiled away in his motorcycle repair shop. The Blitz had destroyed everything. His home, his work, his life. But being eager to put a roof over his family's head and food on the table, with limited funds, Alec rebuilt their cramped little home and in a small structure made of corrugated iron, he built a workshop. And after two years of sweat, tears and stress, finally his hard work was paying off. Described by locals as a man of excellent character, although Alec was barely five foot four, into that little body was packed a barrel load of bravery. As in just that month alone, he had stopped a startled horse from running over a young boy and had ran into a burning building to rescue a child. That morning, having left his home at 186 High Street in Collier's Wood, South London, as a husband and wife team, Alec and Gladys would often ride from showroom to scrapyard across the city, building the business and making sales, with him on his motorcycle and her in the sidecar. But with their youngest son, 
being sick with the flu. That morning, Gladys stayed at home. At two thirty-two p.m., being parked one block south of Jay's the Jewelers, Alec was sat atop of his flame-red nineteen-thirties Indian Scout motorcycle. He just had two more sales to go, and then he would go home. In the distance, he heard what sounded like a car backfire, and thought nothing of it. And then a second bang, from the same direction. Slowly, as the traffic thickened, alarms wailed, and an armed angry mob loomed large on the northwest corner of Charlotte Street. Being blocked by trucks, and desperate to leave, with two decent citizens having wrestled one robber to the ground, and the taller, masked man now ready to run, Alec fired up his motorcycle, roared his bike up Charlotte Street, and right outside of Jay's, he cut off the robber's only space of escape. Being stood. Face to face, Garrity could easily have backed up, climbed over, or pushed by Alec, but he didn't. As Alec was unarmed, with his empty hands spread wide to block the robber's escape, seeing red, Garrity shot Alec in the head. Although unconscious. And bleeding profusely from a five and a half inch oval and jagged bullet wound, Sergeant William Meldham attempted to administer first aid at the scene. Until at two forty-seven p.m., when Alec was admitted to the Middlesex Hospital, being barely alive, with his blink reflexes absent, his breathing limited to deep raspy gasps, and a bloody froth. Oozing freely from his purple lips, as a forty-five caliber bullet had eviscerated his left corpus striatum, a key part of the brain critical for movement. Being in a coma, as his brain bled uncontrollably, thirty-four-year-old married father of six, Alec de Antiquitas, died of his injuries just ten minutes later. So angry was the outrage at these callous cowards, who had left a decent family bereft of a father, a husband, and its sole breadwinner. With Alex's life insurance policy being just a paltry fifty pounds, the Carnegie Heroes Fund raised almost six thousand pounds to purchase his family a more suitable family home. Parliament. Awarded his widow an annual payment of a hundred pounds a year. For his bravery, Alec was posthumously awarded the Captain Ralph Binney Memorial Medal. And for the full six days of the trial, dressed in black, sat Gladys, silent and stoic, barely yards from the man who had murdered her husband. The real victims of the Charlotte Street robbery were Alec de Antiquitas, his wife, and their children. And this 
was their story. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. A huge thank you this week goes out to my new Patreon supporters. <gasps> who were all very excited by the very new Patreon goodies that are available, which now include badges, stickers, mugs, early access to Murder Mile episodes, and a personal monthly video message from me. Mmm, lovely. And so, to Michelle Wiesenberg, Paige Spencer, Kim Harrison, Nicola Wells, Maria Slizzle, Stephanie Saloka, Jess Pierce, Donna Marie, and Susan Atkins. I give you all a big hug. Come on, everyone get close. Let's all get together. Nice big hug. Mm, yeah, that's nice. That's nice. Mm. <gasps> hey, who squeezed my bum? That's not a Patreon goodie. Yet. Murder Mile was researched. Ri- <laughs> Murder Mile was researched, written, and performed by myself with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Selling a little, or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Oh, uh, sorry, I forgot to say there's no extra mile this week. Yeah, sorry about that. I just didn't have time to record it. Okay, bye. Of course there's an extra mile. There's always an extra mile. And there's always time for extra mile. Oh, time for a drink. Mm. Those Cockney accents. 
really messed up my voice. I really struggled with that one. Or, geezer, leave it out, geezer. I was having some fun with it, though. Uh, it's going to have fun editing this episode as well. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. I wanted to do something a little bit different this time. Mess around with the format. I've tried over the last couple of episodes, really, to kind of give you something... Uh, kind of lay down a format so you kind of understand how each murder mile is going to lay out you know there's kind of a formula to them now but what I'm trying to do is have a bit of fun and mess with the formula so we've got the fast forward going on we've got obviously got a full sending on here this entirely most of this episode was an entire red herring or it was really just back history to make you look one way whilst I kind of did a kind of bait and switch it was kind of diversion I deliberately tried to tell you very little about the murder until we had to and then it was like let's learn about the murder so i hope you enjoyed that one that was something different uh obviously to new people of murder mile uh this is the bit where i dive into uh all the extra details about murder mile um about this episode not essential you don't need to stay here um but it can be quite interesting obviously with this case there was a lot of details this was a big file big file and i took oh god it took such a long time to go through it because it was so complicated um so uh there's extra bits in here that are quite interesting so i'll i'll, I'll dive into them i'll make a little caveat right at the start so on the bayswater robbery that i mentioned right at the start that was the first robbery uh of which the three uh walsh was the guy who checked out the location uh, fenced the jewellery afterwards and kept ha- almost half of the goodies afterwards uh, and stiffed Geraghty and Jenkins. Involved in that, because they didn't know who was involved in that robbery until uh, they went to trial for murder later on where they tried to dob Walsh into it, no one really knew who'd committed that robbery at all. Hence, I deliberately don't use their names in there at the start in the robbery. I just say three masked men. But... Rolt wasn't involved in that robbery. I have to make that clear clear right here. Uh, it was actually a man called uh, Michael Joseph Gillum. I deliberately took him out of the story because we already had enough names in there already. There's already, like, you've had a lot of names in there. I didn't want to confuse it. Uh, so because of our mass men, it was Geraghty and Jenkins uh, and Michael Joseph Gillum. And Walsh was the fence and the guy who'd, uh, the stocky cockney who'd gone in there and checked out the uh, Bayswater um, jewellery store he'd gone in there asking if they'd got uh, horseshoe shaped earrings mm, yeah very nice yeah. very tasteful man of taste obviously uh so i just thought i'd mention that uh michael joseph gillam was actually charged with handling stolen goods goods uh, at the time of the old bailey trial it was just after that he was sentenced to five years but they but because they were all masked they couldn't prove that he was one of the robbers of the bayswater robbery so uh obviously he wasn't charged with that but he was charged with handling stolen goods because they found some of the goods still on him he hadn't sold them all off um one thing you might have noticed in there that i find still find baffling uh, I didn't put it in the story. I took it slightly out because it just sometimes it's just sometimes it's not right to put a comedy moment into a story when you're too busy trying to sell tell something dramatic. But think about it this way, right? Charlotte Street robbery. They'd got off the tube at Gouge Street, which is a Northern Line tube which runs parallel to Tottenham Court Road. They'd walked one street over to Charlotte Street which even if you look on Google Maps, it's a two-minute walk. It's a one-minute run at best. They'd bought 
a return ticket to Shadwell Station, which cost them six pence apiece uh, each, so they could get on the tube and escape there. And what their plan was was to steal a getaway car, which they did, which was a Vauxhall 11, black Vauxhall 11, uh, drive it at speed from Charlotte Street, dump it at Good Street Tube Station, and then get on the the tube. Yeah? Why? Why steal a car and have it parked outside on Charlotte Street only to drive it what is effectively a one-minute runaway, which in a car is probably 20 seconds, and then dump it there? You've got to get in the car. You've got to get get yourself comfortable. You've got to switch on the car, which... uh, Sorry, start the ignition, which for them was obviously a problem. You've got to weave your way through traffic. Why not just run? Why waste... Oh, such idiots. Why did they do that? Why were they... Because they were so close to the tube. And actually, they were next to uh, Tottenham Court Road tube. They were also not too far away from Great Portland Street tube, which is uh, is multiple lines, uh, and Warren Street as well. They could have just gone anywhere. Oh, they're, they're, it's, it's on major bus routes. They could have just jumped on a bus like they did elsewhere. Why did they have to steal a bloody car? God, they're idiots. Really are idiots. They were using the same plan that they'd used before on the Bayswater robbery when they'd... When they'd literally, I mean, it was the same there as well. Um, the distance between the uh, A and B Davies, the jewellers on Queensway and Bishop's Bridge Road where they dumped the uh, their car um, it was nothing it was literally nothing they, I, they, you could you could walk it in five minutes it really wasn't worth stealing a car but they did and they were idiots and they oh, just idiots anyway uh, so I've got more details to tell you obviously what I did in this story because we'd already done the important bit I was leading you up to the reasons why they committed the murder obviously I don't tell you that's what I'm doing but that's what really what I'm doing is talking about the history of where the robbery came from the fact that they were angry the fact that they committed a, uh, they'd organized a robbery so I got some pricks going past in the boat problem is it's a Saturday here and loads of pricks have gone out and rented a boat and they have no idea what they're doing and if they they get any nearer I'm gonna smash their faces in oh god they're idiots today uh what was I saying I can't remember yeah so I was leading you up uh, to the point where the, where the murder actually happens but I don't tell you that that's what it is and that's what we're leading to is the murder and then we get the escape which for us uh, is really unimportant because the murder has actually happened. So I cut a lot of this out, but it is quite interesting. There's some really interesting parts. So, as you remember, two of the robbers escaped, Jenkins and Rolt. Now, just off Tottenham Road, what they'd done is they'd jumped onto the running board of a taxi. And the taxi was owned by a guy called Albert Victor Grubb. Why they did that? Obviously, you'd think if you were escaping, you'd want to lose your mask and you want to be uh, as inconspicuous as possible. They didn't think about that at all. What they wanted to do was escape. So they jumped onto the running board. These are the like, the old sideboards of the old taxis that they used to have. Jumped on those, made themselves very clear as the taxi went along Tottenham Road and headed towards Tottenham Road. And as the taxi turned into Torrington Place, the taxi driver was angry, Albert, and he basically told them to piss off. They jumped off his taxi... They dashed into Brock House. 
Now, uh, well, well, yeah, uh, so going into Brock, Brock House, uh, two men were on their way trying to get into uh, Brock House at that moment. One was Percy Skinner, a lorry driver who was making a delivery. And another one, there was a boy as well. Oh, here he is. A uh, 14-year-old Brian Cox, who was an office boy at uh, Medical Bottle Surprise Supplies at Brock House. Basically, uh, Rolt and Jenkins pushed back them, passed past them to try and get in, uh, barged their way in, ran upstairs, said that they were looking for someone called Hooper, which they weren't because there was no one in the building called Hooper. They dashed upstairs, making a hell of a lot of noise. Uh, they went up to the top. F- they went up to the second floor. Uh, and then they started basically uh, looking all sweaty and nervous and peeping through all of the windows and running upstairs. And basically everyone looked to them. Loads of people came out and saw them and went, what the hell is going on? Two idiots running around. And that's where they dis- decided to get rid of Jenkins, uh, the brightly coloured jacket that he was wearing, which eventually convicted them. Really, he could have taken it home and could have burnt it. But instead, he decided to dump it in a building. Ugh. Why did he do that? Because he's a bloody idiot. Anyway, um, what else happened there? Oh, yeah, no, so uh, as he was taking off the jacket... See, this is why I took it out, because it's all silly, and it just wouldn't make, have made any any uh, point to it. Uh, as Jenkins was taking off his jacket, uh, he spilt a crap load of keys all over the floor. He had loads of keys. He had some of the car keys that obviously Rolt had used to um, get into the... Uh, oh, God, those dickheads are coming back again uh the voxel uh, 11 that they stolen he got all the keys in the pocket he'd spilt them all over the floor they'd gone uh in between the partitions of a lift and fallen down so they couldn't actually uh collect them pick them up um it was a bit of a kerfuffle then he had, he hid the key, hid the keys oh i hope they crash they really are dickheads and they have no idea what they're doing Ugh, you should see it here. They really are a bunch of arseholes. Uh, I think I'm going to call the company and have their deposit taken away. Ha, 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 ha. I've done it before. I will do it again. Um, so uh, they made a, made a big uh, cock up uh, and then they disappeared. A gentleman called uh, Reginald Campbell Hyam, who I mentioned before, was the foreman and painter who was there. He was the one who, who uh, like eight days later, discovered this jacket that we mentioned, the, the fawn-coloured Macintosh and the cap and the gloves uh, hidden behind a partition on the second floor in an anteroom uh, and basically handed it into the police. It's because of him that they were able to make the connection between Jenkins and Jenkins Associates from that point onwards, which was fantastic. It really was. It just shows that small little details like that can make a big difference. Uh, oh dear, I got burpees. Now, um, prior to this moment, the police had really struggled with this investigation. What they'd done... Is because the men were masked. Everyone who it had said had seen them, the police brought them in as rightly so, and they took them to the uh, criminal records office and showed them a series of mugshots of people who they guessed were responsible for robberies, for robberies in this area, who they thought might be responsible for the Charlotte Street robbery. Um, loads of witnesses. Everyone looked to them. Non uh, Geraghty, Jenkins, Rolt were not identified at all. Obviously, because they were disguised, because uh, they'd got the uh, masks over their faces, they were wearing caps. People could, really couldn't see who they were. There was a widespread uh, press campaign at that moment, and the police were going door to door, but literally they had no luck until the discovery of that fawn-coloured Macintosh. That really was the key piece of information. Um, 
Even the police managed to track down uh, the owner of the stolen Vauxhall 11 uh, registration kit registration plate kpk 525 it was owned by a gentleman called claude alexander green who was a company director uh, he'd left his car at 56 whitfield street which is a street right next to charlotte street at about 2 p.m so uh, about ooh, just about 30 minutes before it was it was stolen uh, and he didn't realize he, he didn't return until about 3 30 by which time it had gone he didn't realize at all uh so on some of the pictures that i will post on social media you will see jay's the jewelers and you'll see the car that voxel 11 still in situ outside jay's the jewelers um obviously there's lots of witnesses obviously uh you've got uh the staff inside jay's the jewelers you've got all the people who congregated outside jay's the jewelers you've got the people who tripped over uh jenkins as he ran you've got all of the staff inside brook house you've got the taxi driver of which uh jenkins and rolt jumped on the running board etc etc uh, and the men but the men that they barged past at brook house all of them gave witness statements um the problem is they're all awful like really bad so i went through all the witness statements and i had to compile this list and this is my list and because all the men look very similar in a way um and there was nothing really identifiable about them it's hard to really pin down who was who even even the witnesses couldn't really tell what people were wearing so this is what i've worked out worked out so the first man was 23 to 24 years old, five foot six, long dark hair, clean shaven, wearing dark clothing and no hat. Now, I'm guessing that's Rolt. Uh, second man, 23 to... See, all these dates are wildly out. Like, Rolt was 17. I'll add in these details as we go through. So the second one who I've worked out is Jenkins, 23 to 27 years old. Okay, he was 22. Uh, five foot ten, slim build, fair hair, dressed in a fawn-coloured raincoat. Yeah, they got that detail right. No hat, he did have a hat. Dark, greasy hair, very high cheekbones, clean shaven. So that is Jenkins. The third man, uh, who is Geraghty, 35 years old mm, he wasn't he was 20 uh five foot eight no he was five foot ten medium build uh blue green macintosh it was blue uh gray cap sallow compa- complexion uh medium blue overcoat with large faint reddish checks they got that right but many people didn't blue cap see gray cap blue cap all the same white silk handkerchief which was tied at the back over his face wearing a dark suit blue shirt with a collar and a tie i'm guessing that was Geraghty. uh but you see, that's why it was impossible for the police to really nail down who these people were. Because if 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 you've got thirty people and they can't come to a, they can't agree on what a person looks like, how are you gonna how are you gonna take the case forward any any further forward? It's almost impossible. Um, so the police were struggling. There was no real details about these men. None of the stolen items were found at that point because obviously that they hadn't stolen anything. They'd went in there. Uh, they hadn't got. They hadn't got. Uh, the, the, the the safe wasn't open. The cabinets weren't open. They basically came away with nothing. In fact, with Jenkins having dropped his gun there, they came away with even less. So this is how bad they were as criminals. Um, so. Um, the discovery of Jenkins' uh, raincoat was really important. Now I kind of glossed over it because we did it. I did it at the ending, but this is this is the detail. So, inside that fawn-coloured raincoat was the maker's stock ticket. Now that is um, back in those days. 
um, when a tailor would make a coat, they'd leave a little stock ticket in there. So um, if there were any problems with the jacket, you could bring it back and you could say, I've got a problem with the jacket. And they go, oh, yes, inside is my stock ticket. That's fine. That's 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 my uh, we made that. Uh, so that fawn coloured raincoat was made by Burton's the Tailors at number number five to nine High Street in Deptford. Um, and uh, this was shown to Arthur Ellis Amos, who was the manager of the store, and he confirmed that it had been sold there on the 30th of November 1946, so just be, maybe about five or six months before. And it was sold to a Mr. Thomas of number 60 Park Buildings, E16. Now, living at that address was a lady called Mrs. Vera Kemp. Vera Kemp was the sister of Charles Henry Jenkins. Obviously, she'd been married. That was that was her married name. Um, and now she was interviewed and she confirmed that the, the raincoat was her husband's. His name was obviously Thomas Kemp. Sorry, I said Mr. Thomas up there. I should really have said Mr. Thomas Kemp. My, I'll update my details. I don't know why I'm doing that. So the jacket belonged to a Mr. Thomas Kemp. They spoke to Vera, Vera Kemp, who was the sister of Charles Henry Jenkins, who we know as Jenkins. They interviewed her and she confirmed that the raincoat was her husband's, Thomas Kemp. And she said that it had been stolen a few weeks prior in the Green Man Public House in Riding House Street, which is uh, not too far from Charlotte Street. It literally is around the corner. Um, she seemed nervous in the interview. Uh, and they uh, they intercepted Thomas Kemp before he got home, uh, where he stated that he had lost that jacket at the pictures. So their two stories entirely clashed. On interrogation, he admitted that he had loaned uh, he had loaned it to Harry. Um, Harry is the nickname of Charles Henry Jenkins, who we're calling Jenkins, one week before. So that's where they knew. That's where they knew that Jenkins was the man who was wearing the coat during that robbery. Bing a bang a boong. Lovely, lovely. Uh, one also important thing that happened was um, obviously Rolt uh, got rid of the gun. There were four guns in total there. Um, Jenkins dropped his in the shop. We got that one. That was fine. Um, uh, Geraghty uh, hid his guns. They were actually found in Red Hill uh, on the uh, south coast uh, a, a couple of days later. There was kind of someone had said we found a gun here and it actually matched the ones that were lost. I haven't put those in the story because it throws out the story. But um, there was a 10 year old boy called George Mizen uh, who lived in Stepney. And on the 17th of May, uh, so just a couple of days no, probably about three weeks after the robbery, that would be. Uh, he was playing with his friend Dennis in the mud of the Thames. Don't forget, this is 1947. There weren't a lot of things to do except play in mud. We've all done it, haven't we? The tide was out. And at the bottom of Shadwell, uh, the, the dock stairs in Shadwell, um, off, off Gamis Road, uh, his foot hit something hard. Uh, it turned out to be the revolver. It turned out to be the, the 38 caliber Bulldog revolver. No, sorry, that would be the 30... Yeah, that's the 38 caliber revolver. Um, and he took it to Shadwell Police uh, Section House uh, just on King Park in, in Wapping. And it turned out that that was the gun, which is perfect. That's, that's exactly what they wanted. So they got the jacket and they got the gun, which started tying people together. Um, I mentioned in there very briefly that Walsh was arrested. Um, I didn't mention how. Um, it is an, it is quite a nice story. Um, so I, obviously this is why Extra Mile's there. Um, <laughs> thank God for Extra Mile. Um, so 
basically, uh, there's a gentleman called John Austin Morris who was 54 years old. He was a, a detective officer in the Admiralty, uh, which is attached to the Royal Marines. Now, uh, he's a former uh, retired Met Police officer up until 1945, so two years prior, uh, and he was formerly stationed at Plumstead in South London, which was where Walsh actually lived. Uh, and part of his duties, he would visit various police stations, including his old Plumstead uh, branch where he used to live um, uh, and that day he decided to visit Shooters Hill Police Station not too far away and he was talking to Sergeant Clinker good name that Clinker he was talking to Sergeant Clinker who mentioned uh, that William Henry Walsh uh, who was a known felon was wanted and uh, he showed him a, a circulation in the Police Gazette which basically said we are looking for this man if you see him bring him in at 1.50pm on the 16th of May 1947, uh, John Austin Morris was driving along Plumstead Common Road towards Woolwich. This is all in South London. South London, innit? Um, uh, where he sees Walsh, who he already knew, walking along. He already knew him, uh, decides to, because obviously Walsh knows that he's now a retired copper, so he can't, well, he thinks he's a retired copper, he thinks he can't really do anything, he can. Uh, he decides to engage Walsh in a kind of a conversation for about 10 minutes, kind of just a regular, how are you doing, what's going on, hey, hey, oh, 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 oh I'm a geezer, geezer. Uh, and he deliberately bided his time until uh, PC251, who's a uh, PC farthing, who was literally just around the corner on his bicycle, until he came around the corner, um, Austin, uh, John Austin Morris beckoned the policeman, grabbed him, pinned Walsh to the floor, and he was taken to Woolwich Police Station and arrested. <gasps> Fantastic. Uh, John Austin Morris was awarded, also awarded the Captain Ralph Binney Memorial Medal, medal for his actions of that day. It's a, uh, that's a bravery medal. I've heard of quite a few people who, that seems to be a medal that a lot of people get if they do something brave in, you know, to, to help solve a crime or, you know. I think I might look into that some more. See if there's any other people in London who've received the Ralph Binney Medal. Um, now, of the trial, it was a six-day trial at the Central Criminal Court, which we all know as the Old Bailey. It was started at 10:30 a.m. on Monday, the 21st of July, 1947, and concluded on the 28th of July. Um, Charles Charles Henry Jenkins, Christopher James Geraghty, and Terence John Peter Rolt. I've been struggling to say that throughout the whole bloody record. Uh, were tried before Mr Justice Hallett. All had previous con convictions who I mentioned at the start. Uh, and were convicted of murder. Uh, obviously because they couldn't prove who had fired that fatal shot. Now even though during one of the, uh, the interrogations. Uh, Geraghty had said yes it was me I fired the fatal shot. They couldn't prove it. How can you prove it? Really, it's like, you know, he hadn't got his fingerprints on a gun. Obviously, he's got no powder burns there. Um, even detectives will tell you that the chance of actually getting a fingerprint off a gun, because guns are, by and large, oily, is about 5%. It's very rare. So when you get these TV shows and they go, we've got a gun, we've got a fingerprint, that's bullshit. It really, is. that's TV bullshit. It's like the chance of getting a fingerprint off a gun is remote, which is really why the police d don't deal with that too much because it's, it's just not it's not something that's really going to solve a case you're going to have to find a gun that just isn't oily which by and large they are um so uh uh Geraghty and uh Geraghty and Jenkins were sentenced to death for murder in the pursuit of a robbery 
uh, and obviously they were using a gun, which was one of the uh, one of the five criteria for which is the difference between serving a life life sentence and death sentence. But with Rolt being only seventeen years old, because he was classified as a minor, he was detained at His Majesty's pleasure for a period of not less than five years. By what I can find, he seemed to have served uh, fifteen years. Um, although whether he got extra time while he was in prison, I'm not too sure. That's about as far as I could find out what he was in there for. Um, as mentioned before, uh, William Henry Walsh, uh, Walsh and Michael Joseph Gillam um, were both tried for the uh, the Bayswater robbery. Uh, they were found. <coughs> excuse me. Um, and they pleaded uh, guilty to this. Uh, Walsh felt ill around the time, having been uh, committed to trial at Marlborough Street Magistrates Court because uh, he was suffering from thrombosis. Mm, exciting. Um, now, Geraghty, Jenkins and Rolt all appealed their convictions. Their appeals was heard, were heard on the 3rd of September 1947, just a few months later, and all three of those appeals were dismissed. Uh, the murder trial was convened for just 15 minutes and the jury came back and unanimously found all of them guilty of murder. Mm. Fantastic. Um, now obviously, there's loads of information in this case. I had to sit and read a file of... Basically, there's a whole other file that goes with this whole murder file of people who state that uh, Geraghty, Jenkins and Rolt weren't involved in the murder at all. And you go through all the, this whole case and there's all these people who say, no, 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 he was at the Wentworth Art Model Gallery at Jerusalem Passage in Clerkenwell. And all these people are basically saying, oh, God, no, he was with this person and he was with uh, this guy who was a soldier and he was 70 miles away. He was in South End on sea at the time. And it's all bollocks. It really is. So any of the stories you read online about people saying that Geraghty Jenkins and Rolf, Rolt were not involved in this uh a robbery and murder it's complete bollocks i've read this whole file back right through and all of these extra testimony that came after the case it didn't come during the case it came after the case it's all bollocks none of it makes any sense at all uh, uh good i think that was it i think that was the case Whew, did that make sense was that interesting god that was exhausting I'm tired just talking about that. Uh, <laughs> so um, I thought I'd mention something that might be quite interesting. Uh, I'm going to make a little change to Murder Mile. Uh, something I decided today, I posted it on my uh, Murder Mile discussion forum. There's a lot of uh, interest in it. So I've decided to do this. Don't worry, it's, not, it's nothing horrible. Um, obviously, we're halfway through season two now. I'm enjoying it. Hope you're enjoying it too. Uh, you can nod if you like. Nod now. Nod now. Look like a weirdo. People will go, no, say yes. No, say yes. Say yes. Say yes, Michael. I, I'm enjoying it. Say it loud. Go on, say it now. Doesn't matter where you are, whether you're in the car, whether you're on a bus, in the shops. Just say, yes, Michael, I agree. Yes, Michael, I agree. And then say, I will kill people. I will kill people. Because <laughs> you want to look like a weirdo, don't you? Uh, this will be the change to Murder Mile. It's something, something that I hope you'll, you'll enjoy. I enjoyed season one, uh, doing all the little murders that we do of Soho. Uh, I've I've really enjoyed doing Extra Mile. They've been really important. Uh, I think having a break in the middle of the season with Extra Miles are really useful as well. They help me uh, do the research. And I really loved doing Blackout Ripper, um, the eight-parter. Uh, had a lot of fun with that. I think a lot of people really re responded well to the Blackout Ripper series. So 
what I've decided to do is end each season from now on with multi-part series. Uh, so we've done Blackout Ripper. In the same vein as that, I I think I'm going to go back to my, my specialist subject, someone who I really enjoy writing about. I've got loads of stories to tell about him. And I'm thinking about doing the full story of Dennis Nielsen. Ah, Dennis. So uh don't know how many parts it will be. Obviously, I'll have to work that out as I go along. Um, another boat going past, full of dickheads. Uh, but it'll be Dennis Nielsen. So uh, obviously, we've got already got a two-parter in, in the... In the uh, in the catalogue already about about the people who Dennis didn't kill or the ones who survived but what this is going to be is kind of a well now he's dead a cradle to grave so I'm really going to look at his past going to look at his family going to look at his life really going to be and and do you know hopefully learn more about the victims now the problem with this is unlike the Blackout Ripper uh, the file isn't available at the National Archives it's uh, what year are we 2018 so uh, yeah it's not available until 2083 so unless you guys are willing to wait for another 60 odd years uh, 50 what is it 50, yeah, 57 years so uh, I, I doubt that so what i'll do uh, i've got loads of information already there's loads of other ways that i can find information about about dennis nielsen's victim and what i'll do is a uh, big old multi-part profile about dennis nielsen uh, so that will end season two and then i've got some other ones for season three and season four people are really gunning it past today really pissing me off now slow it down people are just fucking dickheads they're gonna lose their yep they're gonna lose their deposit i'm gonna call and uh, they're going to lose their deposit. Ha, ha, ha. It'll be about £100. Thank you very much. Uh, so hope that's good. I've um, got some questions from some listeners. Uh, these came in a while ago, but I, I thought I'd go through these today. Uh, so this is from Lorraine. Lorraine did ask a little while ago. Uh, Mike. Hello. That's me. Hello. Uh, do you pop into a, a McDonald's or a Costa to upload your podcast? Because obviously I live on a boat and I don't really get a lot of, uh, a lot of internet out here. Uh how do you go about uploading uh, Murder Mile on the, on the good ship Murder Mile? It must take a lot of data. Yes, it does. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, where I am at the moment, surrounded by uh, floaty, floaty dickheads. Uh, oh, this is pissing me off today. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it does. And, and where I am now, I barely get phone reception. I barely get internet. So what I do is, when, I'm do, when I do my tours on a Sunday morning... Um, I start my tours at 11, but I get into the co- coffee shops at about 7am and I, I entirely abuse their internet. Uh, it's the only way I can do it at the moment because I don't, I don't get um, broadband at all. Uh, Kim Nixon sent a question. Um, she said, I've got another question. It's not true crime related. Uh, when you have a narrow boat uh, and you f- you're frequently moving, as you mentioned, as you do, uh, how do you get your post delivered? <gasps> yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, I have a P.O. box, which is good. It's in Soho. Uh, it's on my website, so people can send me stuff if you want. Don't don't send me dirty knickers or poo. Uh, <laughs> you can if you want to. I'm sure people in Soho are used to receiving dirty knickers and poo. Um, but, yeah, no, I have a P.O. box, which is great when I'm in town. It's there. Uh, the problem is where I am now in the country. I'm about 30, 40 miles away from my P.O. box. So when people, like, grumble in the mornings about having to get their post and they're having to get out of bed and walk downstairs to, to go all the way to the door to pick up their post, yeah, I have to travel. 
I've to do like 60 mile round trip to get my post. It's really annoying, uh, but it's all right in winter. I don't mind it that much. <sighs> so that was Murder Mile. How long did that take? Cool, that was almost a two hour record. That was tiring. This is going to be a bugger to edit. I've no idea how I'm going to edit this one. Oh, it was fun while I was thinking up the idea, but now I'm thinking about it. Now it's just like, oh, how am I going to make... I'm going to make it look like I'm rewinding and fast-forwarding. Oh, I need to work that out. But first, I'm going to have a sit-down. I think I might have a beer. Yeah. Anyway, that was fun. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, we're going to be back next week with another murder case. I don't know what it is yet. I haven't even checked. I've got a whole list in front of me, and I've kind of half-researched them. But now, I need to start focusing on Dennis Nielsen. Ooh, Dennis, that's exciting. So, uh, that's Murder Mile for this week. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, etc. Oh, I don't know how to end this. You know me. I've forgotten how to end it. What shall I do? Should I just say bye? One, two, three, bye. Oh, I don't know. It sounds shit, doesn't it? Maybe. How, how do I end it? Uh, maybe I'll sing a song. Bling, bring me sunshine in your smile. Bring me laughter all the while. In this world where we live, there should be more happiness. So much joy we can give to each brand new bright tomorrow. Make me happy through the years. Never bring me any tears let our hearts be as one as the sun from up above bring me fun bring me sunshine bring me love to everyone who enjoyed Morecambe and Wise that was Bring Me Sunshine by Morecambe and Wise thanks guys hope you enjoyed the episode oh thanks to all the new Patreon supporters you guys are fab and to everyone who's a regular listener thank you so much I'll catch you soon you'll be good now bye Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.